Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Today's episode deals with the legacy of Indigenous residential schools and discusses the deaths of children. It's not for all listeners. Ostensibly, the idea was to do media criticism. That is what the article in the National Post set out to do, to hold the press to account and to correct errors that occurred in the reporting of the discoveries of unmarked graves at former Indigenous residential schools. And there were errors. Newspapers called them mass graves. They were unmarked graves. Newspapers called the grave sites discoveries. Really, these were confirmations. Many First Nations had known about these sites for years. Ground-penetrating radar confirmed what had been known and gave figures as to the likely number of graves. So that was the stated intent of Terry Glavin's article, The Year of the Graves, to set the record straight. But that was not its impact. Breaking news. Uh, this morning, there was a article that came out at um, the National Post. You probably have known this for a long time if you have critical reasoning skills, but the claims about mass graves, etc., the Catholic Church being part of some massive cover-up of the slaughtering of thousands of indigenous children in these mass graves and, you know, throwing them into these big holes in the ground and et cetera, et cetera. Turns out it's all a lie. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that audacious claims with no basis based on fallacious media narratives in Canada under Justin Trudeau about Catholicism, who would have thought those things would have been a lie? I know, you're completely shocked. Almost instantly, Glavin's article was championed by voices like that of the pro-Catholic YouTuber you just heard by federal party leader Maxime Bernier, and by American Conservative magazine, which used the National Post article to assert that the entire Truth and Reconciliation Commission report cannot be trusted. They seized on the National Post article not as a corrective on flawed media reports, but as evidence that the whole story about what the church and the government did to Indigenous kids was fake news. A fraud. A hoax. A false narrative took shape, suggesting and hinting and insinuating that all of these supposed gravesite discoveries had been dug up and nothing was found. Terry Glavin's article triggered a backlash that had been long brewing against Canada's residential school reckoning. Here's Karen Pugliese, executive editor at the National Observer and former director of news at APTN. It happened almost right away after the discovery of the graves at uh, to Kamloops, was, uh, there was immediate pushback saying, well, maybe they're gopher holes, or how do we know what they really are? And no bodies have been found. And everybody, let's just wait and see. Like there was, um, I think there was even a fake documentary that was made about it. So this has been going on for a while. So yeah, doubters and deniers seized on Terry Glavin's article. But is that Terry Glavin's fault? Journalists need to be held accountable for what they write. But can you hold them accountable for how other people interpret or use what they write? Here's another question I had. Why does an article that ostensibly is seeking to clear up a series of reporting errors stretch into a 
wide-ranging 5,000-plus word essay touching on everything from Russian propaganda to Black Lives Matter. I wanted to know Terry Glavin's answers to these questions and more. Other people, many of them indigenous people, thought that the potential for harm in me interviewing Terry Glavin outweighed any good that might come from this. One of those people happened to be arts journalist and Canada Council Chair Jesse Wente, someone who you've heard on the show before, someone who I have a great deal of respect for, and, and someone who I will always listen to, even when he and I don't agree. The consensus message from him and from many others was that there is simply no point in trying to have a conversation with somebody who denies facts. And that's true. But was that the case here? And how could that even be determined without a discussion? That's what I thought. You will hear more from Karen Pugliese later on the show, as well as from writer and critic Robert Jago. But first, Terry Glavin. Wait for it. I'm Terry Glavin. I am a columnist for the National Post and the Ottawa Citizen. I am a senior fellow with the Ralph Wallenberg Institute for Human Rights. And I have written that uh, Year of the Graves uh, retrospective that you're so angry about. Hi, Terry. Hi. Let's start with Common Ground, where I believe that you and I and the historical record and reality all agree Canada's residential school system was cultural genocide. You've been reading my stuff. So we're on the same page there. Yeah, I, yeah more or less. I, whatever. I mean, yeah, sure. Yep, yep. So uh, no dispute. This was an abuse of unjust and, and for many children, many, many children, a fatal system. You have been emphatic that you are not a residential school denier. I have that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, if I'm a residential school denier, so are all of the chiefs and all of these local... Uh, events that uh, the media got so wrong. Okay, well, we'll get into that, uh, but that is, I think, important to establish. Well, come on. I mean, <laughs> are you serious? Maybe Jesse Wente was right, you know? Maybe he's right. Maybe you're not qualified to challenge me and, and, and confront me about all of the terrible things I've written in Year of the Graves. Maybe he's right. Maybe I'm not, but here we are. I don't know what kind of conversation you want to have, Terry, but there's a certain kind of conversation that I invited you to. Well, I don't like it when people take this tone with me that you have taken on more than one occasion. All right? Now, you might be able to think you can bully or frighten other people, but I'm sorry. You can, <laughs> you're not qualified to take me on on matters of journalism, on the question of residential schools, or any other subject that might come up in our conversation. So let's get that straight. Let's get that as a common ground. I'm not sure that uh, I'm the one doing the bullying right now, Terry. Oh, you poor dear. I asked you here, and I invited you to talk to me about a piece of writing that was published on the front page of the flagship newspaper of the biggest newspaper chain in Canada to hold it up to scrutiny. Whether I'm capable of doing so or not, you agreed to that. What kind of conversation do you want to have? Because I want to have a conversation about your article. Well, go for it. How many times do you want me to say, come on, Jesse, let's have you? Most media and most Canadians understand the events of the last year 
to be a long overdue reckoning over the legacy and the reality of what happened in residential schools. You had a different series of descriptions for it. You called the response over the last year the craziness, the uproars, utterly surreal eruptions, national convulsions, paroxysms of shame, guilt, and rage that swept across the country. So I think it's fair to say that you've taken a pretty negative view of those responses. Yeah, I take a pretty negative view of a bunch of, uh, of white know-nothings talking over Aboriginal people and what they actually said. I take a very dim view of a bunch of white people splashing red paint on Queen Victoria's statue and knocking over the, a statue of Captain Cook, of all people, and throwing it into Victoria Harbour over the express opposition of the local Esquimalt, Songhees, Saanich, Sartlet, Sakem, and Pakwichan tribes who were disgusted with it. Yeah. I take a dim view of that. And the same kind of thing happened in Winnipeg, and Murray Sinclair took a similarly dim view. Yeah, I do take a dim view of that. I challenge the accuracy with which you described what happened. If your readers want to know what was this craziness? What were these convulsions, this uproar, this terrible thing that happened in Canada that Terry's talking about? You have an answer for them. You say that these eruptions were eruptions of violence. That's what you wrote. And you describe this as a national phenomenon. What was this violence? Well, I mean, I don't think anybody would dispute that it's pretty violent to, to, to uh, vandalize dozens of churches uh, and, uh, and, and burn down several churches beloved of the indigenous communities uh, in which they had stood. So if your reader thought that that meant that human beings were hurt, thank you for the clarity, because you were talking about inanimate objects. Whatever. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pretend or, you know, I'll just get on with it, Jesse. Well, I'm talking about hyperbole. I'm talking about rhetoric. I'm talking about an overstatement about... You think it's vi hyperbole to describe what happened to all of those little churches on all those little reserves and the burning of those churches that caused nothing but grief and pain to those indigenous communities. I'm not allowed to use the word violence. I think you misled your readers. Okay, next, next, next issue. Come on, let's have you. What's the right way for people to respond when they finally recognize that their country perpetrated a form of genocide on children? Because you, you seem to be very judgmental about what the wrong way is. I won't tell you what the correct line should be, but I will tell you how I would respond to such a person. Where the hell have you been? That's what I would say. Grown-ups expressing all this shock and surprise that Indigenous people were treated so badly in these residential schools, where the hell have they been? That's how I would respond. I think that it is absolutely accurate that a lot of people had opportunities to know about this beforehand, had opportunities to face it and reckon with it beforehand. But the simple fact of the matter is that we didn't. Look, I'm welcoming of the respect and attention that's being paid by Canadians too. What I'm not welcoming of is major national and international news organizations 
putting words into the mouths of indigenous people, one after the other after the other, right across the country, throughout this craziness, and I'll call it that. This is a, this is a story about white people losing their minds, okay? This is a story, a major story, a story that touches on some of the most tragic and heartrending aspects of Indigenous life in this country. And this is how it was treated, getting it wrong. I will go through this with you. I'll walk you through it if you like. We'll do that. We'll do that. But, but I have to stop you because you're, you're misrepresenting things. It's white people losing their minds. Keisha Supernet is a Métis archaeologist at the University of Alberta. She called your article a deliberate attempt to mislead. Well, that's a lie. David Gill, who is an Indigenous lawyer and a sexual instructor at the University of Victoria, where you live, says... Yeah, we've talked. He says he's been thinking it over some more, and I'm not sure you can read Glavin's piece any other way than bodies or it doesn't matter. I'm not... Well, look, I, I can't help these the problems that these people have with either reading or understanding or clearly... Nigan Sinclair, oh, who is a columnist of the Winnipeg Free Press happens to be the son of Marie Sinclair, says the steaming pile that Terry Glavin wrote in the National Post this week was misinformation propaganda and textbook residential school denialism. Shall we talk about your article? Well, are we going to yet? Well, if you're going to tell me that this is all about white people losing their minds, I have to fact check you on So that. you're saying Native people were losing their minds too? Well, that's not what I was saying. This is what I reported. You reported that nothing new was entered into the public record. That's right. Now, what I reported was that from the very outset, the media got this wrong. They didn't pay attention to what Rose Casimir said. And we had this ghastly story about a, a mass grave that was found in Kamloops. All right? No, that's not true from the beginning. Let th that's not true that, 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 that mass graves were reported from the beginning. Right? That, that was when things went crazy. As you want to frame things, right. That's what I said in the story. I think CFJC and uh, Kamloops this week, uh, I think they got it right, actually. Okay, go on. Anyway, I said the New York Times story is when it went crazy, all right? You said it all began. It all began with the New York Times story. Go on. It was wrong. Yes. Let's give our listeners the, some, some help here. It was wrong in that it reported it as mass graves when, in fact, these were unmarked graves, right? That was the mistake. That's a pretty big mistake. There were 751 graves at Cowessus that were reported as another discovery of residential school children in unmarked graves. That is not what happened. That is not what the local Cowessus people said. They said very explicitly, after the shock horror, this is not an res Indian residential school grave. This is a Catholic cemetery. It's not known how many of those 751 may or may not be indigenous children from the residential school nearby. That was massively wrong. And you had the prime minister of this country kneeling and posing with a teddy bear at what was a Catholic cemetery. And then we can go... We can go to St. Eugene's, a Tunaka community near Cranbrook. In that case, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, it was 280. 280 graves discovered at an Indian residential school. It wasn't. 
It wasn't an Indian residential school grave. It was a white cemetery. Then there was a hospital. Then there was a residential school. We're mostly Catholics up here. We're all buried in there. We get grass fires, little wooden crosses. They burn. That's it. Nothing. No news. You see, here's the thing. This is serious business here. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we're talking about cultural genocide, quite frankly. You have to be precise. You have to be accurate. You have to be right. Because if you're not, you can get, you know, the Polish government saying, well, you know, we really weren't involved in the Holocaust. You've got to get this stuff right. This is all I'm pointing out. Thank you for explaining that. I want to talk with you about this in some nuance and detail. And I'd like to take down the temperature of this combative tone because I'm curious about a couple of things. And I have a couple of points of view to get across that are going to take a different kind of engagement. You want to calm this down? Here, let me calm this down a little bit, okay? One of the things that I, I tried to be nice about this, you know, and I said, look, everybody makes mistakes, right? Fair enough. But there actually is a really important mistake that I think I've probably made it too. I think a lot of us have, and it has some direct bearing on where those 3,200 children, it, it has direct bearing on where those graves might be found. And the mistake is this, and we all do it, and you just made it. So, you know, the, the, the Truth and Reconciliation found that these children died at the residential schools, right? Actually, no. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission did not find that 3,200 children died at the residential schools. The Truth and Reconciliation found no record at all of where 1,300 of 1,391 of them died, okay? Of the remaining 1,800 kids, only 832 died at the schools. Another 418 died at home, 427 died in hospitals, which may or may not be associated with the schools because sometimes they were church-run mission hospitals associated with the schools. 90 died at other non-school locations and 43 died in a sanatorium. But what is the substance of that mistake? There were an intervention by the state. Children were taken from their parents. They were enrolled in residential school and some of them died at those schools and some of them died in sanatoriums and some of them died when they came home with diseases. And they all died likely as a result of abuses of the system. Right. We should get to the bottom of those facts, but what is the what is the relevance? Was it not the genocidal system that killed them? What I just fi I, I just finished telling you. Quiet. I just finished telling you. I'll tell you again. This has significant implications about where those children's graves may be. And now we have information from ground penetrating radar giving us a, a, a not perfect information but more information to add to the public record that various groups thought was newsworthy, so they made announcements, and then the newspapers reported them. And some of those newspapers f***ed it up. But you're saying that nothing was added to the public record? There was no news here? This was, a, this was what, a fake news story? There was nothing about the legacy of the Indian residential schools that was added to the public record. Nothing. We knew these things happened. We knew how horrible it was. Finding the graves changed things, Terry. Finding the graves changed things. It brought things to light. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a good... Okay, listen. This is a legitimate criticism of my piece. Some good actually did come of this stuff. And I think that's probably true. I think a legitimate criticism of, of my piece is that I didn't express that opinion. I certainly didn't express it clearly. What I did say is that, great, you know, after, after five years... Six years, 
seven years, the, the federal government actually started funding this stuff properly. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I didn't say when I reported that this is a good thing. Here's another criticism that might be made. You know, a lot of what was happening last summer that I have described as the craziness involved kids, essentially, late teens, early 20s. Now, I can't fault those people for not knowing about this stuff. I'm sure it came as a shock. A lot of young people that showed up at these demonstrations probably didn't know anything about or very little about this stuff. So that's a perfectly legitimate criticism that you could have leveled against me. When you write that not one mass grave was discovered, it's true. But when people read that, I think they could be forgiven for the way that so many people took that, which is to say, this was all bullshit. The whole thing is a lie. John Kay wrote, oh, the bodies were a no-show, which suggests that there was some great fraud perpetrated by indigenous people, that they said that there were bodies there, but they were a no-show. Maxime Bernier took your piece and said, oh, look, this was all fake news. Well, racist's going to racist. I'm not going to, don't, I don't have any quarrel with anything that John Kay has said. I haven't actually noticed many people saying, look, you know, it was all bullshit and so on. I have noticed a hell of a lot of people who have not read the piece who have accused me of resident of genocide denialism. That's what I've noticed. Here's Helen Andrews, the editor of the American Conservative magazine, uh, Tucker Carlson's involved on the board. Uh, she writes of your piece, this is a brave op-ed, but it's not enough to say the Kamloop mass grave was a hoax. But all the other atrocity stories about residential schools are true. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was fundamentally flawed and no one can trust its findings. A lot of people, people with platforms and audiences, are taking what you wrote and weaponizing it. Helen Andrews, the editor of the American Conservative magazine. And she's saying that the residential schools were an atrocity? No. Okay, what was she saying? I, I'm not, I don't know what this has got to do with me, but... She's saying it's not enough to agree with you that the mass grave story was a hoax. I don't say it was a hoax. Well, that's how she took it. It's not enough if you still think that the other stories are true. No, she says, we got to throw out the whole Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was fundamentally flawed. No one can trust it. So some crazy American conservative has misrepresented what I wrote. Well, take a number. Take a number. So this is an interesting journalistic question. What you're saying, and I understand this argument, I think there's validity to it, is like, how can you be held responsible for how people receive your message? I'm not saying that. You're putting words in my mouth. Okay. The words you said are racists are going to racist, right? Well, I obviously can't prevent it if, if, if I'm going to write this and, and people are going to call me a genocide denier. You know, around the same time, I think it might have been the same day that my piece came out, there was this big spread in the New York Post that my piece was linked to. Ah, say, see, look what you've done. Well, for one thing, no, they were doing their thing. I was doing my thing. There's no link in that way. But what was really interesting about that is that the New York Post was actually doing the opposite of what I was doing. The New York Post got it wrong in the lead. The New York Post said the Kamloops people had claimed to have found a mass grave. Mm -hmm. My God. You see, a lot of people think, 
And this is where the racists come into it. That these are, you know, it's just a bunch of Indians and they're just trying to guilt out the white people and they're grifting the federal government for money. And that's kind of the, you know, what makes the New York Post thing kind of attractive to certain people, I suppose. I'm not, you know what? There may be some interesting stuff in the New York Post thing. I'm not going to get into it, but it was kind of, you know, not bad. The point of it is what they were. Att- wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. It, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad? No, no, no. I said there was some stuff in the New York Post piece. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't bad. Yeah, you wrote that. You wrote, it isn't as bad as you might imagine. The New York Post story that called the Graves story the biggest fake news story in Canada. You're not going to put words in my mouth and you're not going to talk over me. This is what I was warned about, that you're an asshole and you do this. So shut up and listen to what I was going to say. What I was going to say was that the New York Post did the opposite of what I was doing. I was debunking the news media and supporting what the local indigenous people were saying. The New York Post set out to debunk what they said the indigenous people were saying. It's the opposite of what I was doing. Perhaps it was the opposite of your intent, Terry. It was the opposite of what I was doing. Period. I don't know if you can wash your hands of the impact and the actual consequence of what you wrote. Well, I'm glad, you know, you're some kind of clairvoyant, you know, you can look into the brains of every Canadian, you can say, ah, this is the consequence of what Terry Glavin wrote, whatever. All I know is that I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter. My job, the first question, is this true? That's That's all I'm trying to do here. And I think we have to tell the truth. We owe it to indigenous people of this country to tell the truth. Can we return to your piece? Please. You want to talk about what's in the American conservative? I don't know. This is what you write. More than 100 children are known to have died after being enrolled at the Cooper Island School. And stories have circulated for decades about students being buried on the grounds. But they remain stories... And then you write that in 1999, the RCMP conducted an excavation at the site, but they found nothing. That's right. I was very confused by this because on the one hand, you acknowledge the fact that 100 kids are known to have died. After being enrolled at the Cooper Island, yes. After being wrenched from their parents and forced to attend in this notorious prison of a school. But then, you know, there's just stories that they were buried. No, no, no. And the RCMP failed to confirm them. And, you know, I I think, you see, if there's any intelligent people out there listening to this, they can see what you're trying to do here, Jesse. You're deliberately misrepresenting what I wrote, and you're deliberately reading into what I wrote the ugliest kind of insinuation. I'm reading your work. Stories about burials prompt GPR surveys, and then meticulously conducted excavations fail to turn up any human remains. Not a single child you wrote among the 3,201 children on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 2015 registry of residential school deaths was located in any of these places. That's right. And in none of these places were any human remains unearthed. That's right. Again, a statement. Wow. After all that, nothing was unearthed. Why was it not unearthed? Why? Because communities are having conversations about whether or not they want to dig up their ancestors. 
Yeah, and I got I got a lot of I got a lot of sympathy for the people in the Kamloops community who don't want to dig that up. I mean, it's a sacred site to them. Why don't you write about that in the piece? Why didn't you write about Kamloops' internal discussion on excavation? And the chief has now said that they will be. Well, it was already fifty five hundred words. Again and again, you wrote about how they didn't find anything. They didn't find anything. Why not take a few words to say actually the chief says that they will start looking now? Because what you leave people with, what you mislead your reader to believe is that they have something to hide. And I can find plenty of readers who came to that conclusion. Well, there's a lot of bad faith readers out there. And you know what? Most of them are people who lost their shit last year. And I'm no, I am not surprised that they're embarrassed by this. And I'm not surprised they want to say all kinds of wicked things about what I've done here, including you. And everybody can see this, Jesse. Everybody can see this. You don't care about any of this stuff. I do. I've worked with indigenous people since I was a boy reporter. I've written three, three and a half, maybe four books set in what we used to call Indian country. You know, I was an analyst for the BC Treaty Commission. I was an analyst for the Native Council of Canada when the whole damn self-government package went down to flames with the Charlottetown Accord. You can't lecture me on this. You can't tell me, oh, look at all the nasty things you've done for Indigenous people. I'm not going to take it from you. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, Terry, I promised you that this was not going to be a trial of whether you're like a good guy or a bad guy. This wasn't about you. Yeah, yeah, you lied to me. No, I honored that. You're the one who came after me. I'm an asshole. I'm a grifter. I haven't gone after you as a human being, but you keep making this about you. That's because my reputation is impeccable and yours is lousy. We're talking about you because you've made it about you and you just presented your very impressive resume and I don't dispute that you have a long history of doing journalism in these communities. Do you feel like everybody's like on your turf with this one? This is your issue? No, I feel I feel I feel like I you know there's a lot of people who have come to me privately and a lot of by the way indigenous intellectuals and academics and they've said hang in there. A lot of people have, a lot of journalists have come to me uh, privately, good people. And they've said, way to go, way to go. We need, we need to get this story right. Otherwise, there's not going to be any reconciliation. We can't, you know, just be playing around with this stuff. And what I find interesting, what I find very interesting, is that people are afraid. They don't want to have to go through what I'm going through now, okay? Now, I'm, I'm an independent journalist. I don't, I'm not worried about being fired. But I, I, I'm pretty confident that I'll never be able to write for McLean's magazine again. I don't even know if I'm still a contributing editor there. I'll probably never be invited to serve on another Canada Council jury again. I'm not complaining. I mean, whatever. If it means less work, it means I can ride my motorcycle more and I can catch more trout. I'm okay. What I worry about is the young journalists coming up in this vocation, which I will grant you this, I think you actually do care about. I'm going to give you that. Okay. Terry, you have despaired for the state of journalism. You've despaired for the youth. You've despaired for, I don't know who you're writing about here, uh, our collective self-destruction. I can only assume you're talking about Canada destroying itself over. Oh, God. And you've despaired for yourself. No, wrong, wrong. We've heard a lot about poor me. You're never going to work in this town again. That's what you're because you're a heretic. That was a joke. Mm -hmm. you, have you never heard that expression before? 
Yes, but you also talked about poor Terry, who wrote a piece that has cast him as a heretic. Yeah, it has. I've committed an act of blasphemy. I just want to give you some comfort. I think you're going to be fine. That's comforting to me. I think you'll still work in this town again. I'm just not sure you'll be welcome to work on reserve. Yeah, well, f*** you too. Goodbye, Terry. Coming up next, what was that? A discussion. I'm Karen Pugliese. I'm executive editor of Canada's National Observer. I am Robert Jago, and I am a freelance writer and uh, entrepreneur in Vancouver. Robert, I know that you have some context with Terry specifically. Well, I mean, there are people out there saying he has no connection to First Nations. That's not true. He's always been around Stolo people and Stolo, Stolo country, Indian country. You know, when I was a kid, I, I remember seeing him around the Catesy Reserve a lot. And I've talked to some other people at Catesy. They know him. He's worked at the band office. He's uh, been tight with Ernie Cray. He used to come to my mom's shop on res. He wrote the inquest for my cousin's death. He wrote a book about my grandmother's residential school. So he is a known figure in Stolo life. And I could certainly think back to that time when Stolo people needed a champion like that to speak for us and to like communicate our views to the press. Yeah, we don't need anybody speaking on our behalf anymore. So thank you, but no thanks. The thing about that particular article is why would you go over such a minor factual error when there's been obviously a massive campaign going on of disinformation to try to discredit not only what was found at Kamloops, but the entire Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I don't want to criticize him for the article he didn't write. I think there are some criticisms of the article that he did write and that I heard during the interview. So the show me the bodies thing, he doesn't say it explicitly, but it it is throughout the piece and it is the cornerstone of the feedback. And I think that if he had found some space in those 5,500 words to mention that Kamloops was in this process of planning the excavations and moving forward slowly, as governments do, that would have undercut that reaction. So I think that was a huge oversight, considering everything that was in there, that he didn't have space to mention that this process of digging up the bodies and identifying them and returning them to their families. This is a thing that's actually happening. And then casting aspersions on what GPR searches are. I've worked on my bands, um, on my reserves, uh, lands advisory committee. I have a GPR survey of our cemeteries. I've looked at it and it's extremely clear what you see. It's very established science. On our reserve, there are 71 unmarked graves that were identified by the GPR survey and an additional 31 potential unmarked graves. And he makes it sound like this is very ambiguous. You know, we, we don't know what's in there. We don't need someone to second guess. We're not like searching a mall parking lot and saying, oh, these must be graves. So looking at those omissions in the article, with those omissions, he's created some doubt where there is no doubt. If you listen to Chief Roseanne Casimir of uh, to Kamloops, she is also in the press conference right after the discovery. She's very clear that these are graves, these are bodies. 
we have not done all our grounds and we do know that there is still more to be discovered. We know that um, through TRC, how many missing children there are, and we know that there is still a lot of work. This is science validating what the survivors have already said. And he says um, in that interview and in the piece that he's speaking for the Native people that the white press ignored. But when you hear the Native people and they actually speak up, they're extremely clear that we know what this is. These are the bodies. We've expected these here. The TRC has said they are here. And the TRC has identified them here in these numbers. I believe that a response that we heard and is, show me what's wrong. Show me what's wrong. I'm representing quotes from Indigenous leaders. I'm representing the report, show me what's wrong, show me what's wrong. Journalism is often dealt with in a very technical way of like, show me the error. If there's no error, this is good journalism. If you want to see what's wrong, 832. So he cited that number as the number of people who died at residential schools. He also said that uh, for another 1,300, they don't know where they died. That's not the entire story. And he says that he's, you know, representing um, Chief Casimir and Murray St. Clair. But Murray St. Clair says the actual death toll is, could be as high as 25,000. And the TRC report itself in volume four that it's linked to in the post article, his post article, says that this number is incomplete. You know, there are more. There are almost certainly more. You know, I mean, other things, just leaving out that they are excavating. Um, they are planning to excavate in Kamloops. That's an omission. And the biggest omission is to point at these two errors and these two poorly reported findings and ignoring a dozen more. You know, it sounds like when he says, like, this is the lay of the land, there's these four and these two haven't started digging and these two proved to be false. Well, no. I mean, there's a dozen more cases where the chiefs have been very clear, the, the representative has been very clear, like, these are graves. We found graves. There are a lot of errors of omission, and there is a lot of like very selective reporting in that piece. That uh, because of that, it it really misrepresents the situation. One of the things that I think really needs to be reinforced is when the TRC is talking about what they were able to confirm. They've confirmed it with the actual government records, right? So it's on paper. It's the government's own records, the church's own records that are confirming some of the deaths. And then there's the lack of records. There's the schools that burnt down. There's the things that we think were unreported. There's the people who never got answers and you can't find records of the kids. So sometimes when I'm reading some of the pushback against the schools, it's kind of like, well, if the graves aren't there, then there's no evidence. No, if the graves aren't there, there's still evidence. There's still records of dead kids. I guess, I mean, this discussion, like, how many dead are there? Uh, what do the records look like? All that kind of stuff. It's like arguing about what color the sky is on, on any given day. I mean, there are facts. These are established facts. And just because the, the writer or a casual reader doesn't know the facts doesn't mean they don't exist. We're, we're talking about this like it hasn't been established it, the, we, we talk about this like there haven't been court cases or there haven't been tribunals. There hasn't been a TRC. I mean, this stuff is as solid and proven as the speed of light. So, I mean, arguing about this is, is just so nonsensical. When you talk about like the number of graves that there are or the death toll, I mean, you sound like a damn flat earther. That's what that article comes off. And that's what all these supporters sound like. They sound like they should be talking to Joe Rogan, not on the cover of the National Post. I would have really liked to have asked him 
why he decided to write that, like why that was the thing that he thought was important. Was this the most important thing that you could have said a year later on the anniversary? And especially with that context around it that we're seeing in the New York Post and in True North, uh, these other stories that are calling it hoax. So he comes out with a very similar article that doesn't say it's a hoax, but very similar. And so I think that's the context that people are kind of struggling with. You could have well talked about, there was a piece by Kenneth Jackson and Carol Jarvis, APTN and Global, that was looking at child welfare. They took another round at it and looked at what was happening to kids in that system and how broken that system is. And everyone says that's the continuation of the residential school system, and it is. That would have been a great article to write on that day. So I will fault him for the stuff that he didn't write. You're supposed to be thinking as a journalist, this was a heavy event. What is the most important thing that I could say about it today? And the fact that he thought nitpicking over some errors that were made in the early coverage, there's something just misguided about that. The conceit here is that because we care so much about this thing that happened, we have to get our facts exactly right. And we know this from history, especially when it comes to genocide. And to be drawn into this again under the conceit of getting our facts straight because this matters and is real and is important. I worry about my own responsibility in, uh, you know, and I worried about the responsibility of not engaging with this, a story that was very problematic on the front page of a national newspaper, seems like a Canadaland thing to deal with. And I've been warned to worry about the harm of of engaging with it. Those warnings were right. <laughs> I don't think you should have done that interview. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've done the interview with him now. So I think you owe it to everybody to play it. But I think that you shouldn't have done the interview with him, but you should have. You could have engaged with the topic and mm-hmm. had people on who had the expertise to engage with it. And I don't think that you actually owe somebody who would write a piece like that, whatever the intentions, on the one-year anniversary, that's sort of looking over some very minor things and trying to make very large conclusions out of them. Yeah. Where do you think this leaves us? Because I remember having a conversation with you, Karen, right when these stories first broke. And I felt like no one is ever going to look at this country the same. We're in a fundamentally changed place. Uh, And you weren't so sure. No. But like I said, there's more people, there's more of us than there are of them, I guess. And by that, what I mean is there are people who want to face the truth and move forward. And I think I also said to you in that conversation that um, I'm not going to stop. Like, I'm walking and I'm walking in direction. I'm not going to stop walking to have a conversation with somebody who's not walking with me at this point. One of the facts that was left out of the article was that Kamloops is in the process of excavations. They're working with the community to go through this and and to find the process to begin digging and to begin recovering bodies. And once those bodies come up, for the average Canadian who sees this, not for online obsessives, not for people who have the political stance or, or 
the editorial stance of like the National Post. <sighs> Not for people who are wedded to denial. It won't change anything for them. But for the average Canadian, those bodies will start coming up. And that fact will make people like this and stories like this seem absolutely ghoulish. That is your Canada Land. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby and Cherie Suturin. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by so-called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Danielle Paradis, contributing editor here at Canada Land. Tessie Brown. Today, Danny, we're going to talk about why journalism is bad for you. Not you, dear listener. No, this job is harmful to us, uh, journalists, says a new study on mental health in the media. Welcome once again to Shortcuts, Danny, where we talk about the news. Happy to be here. Danny, news stories. There are so many of them. Some slip through the cracks. We try to duly note the good ones that might otherwise go ignored. Do you have something to share today? Yeah. So the story I have, like, I certainly couldn't say that it's, it hasn't gotten any attention. But I think that because there are so many news stories, it's easy for something to maybe not be at the top of our uh, list. And so I wanted to bring attention to a recent discussion on sexual assault in the military. Yeah. So this story, as I've said, it, it was on the national. We, we certainly couldn't say nobody's listening to it. But former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor and Catherine Bergeron both have experienced sexual harassment while serving in the military, came up with a report and a recommendation that the military not be the people to actually have, not have the legal system to litigate these issues. And that's a pretty huge claim. You know, we, there's, this has been like, as well as the year of um, residential schools, it's been like scandal after scandal about the military and its inability to deal with sexual misconduct. Yeah, Cherie Suturin did some reporting uh, on this for us. And part of her reporting was that, like, we just keep reporting and we keep reporting. And we keep, like, mm -hmm. how many Canadian stories can we file under this sort of collective amnesia? And then the proof comes and then we forget the proof. But here we are again. Duly noted. All right, Danny, last week, a major report was released into the mental health of Canadian media workers. It's called the Taking Care Report. A report on mental health, well-being, and trauma among Canadian media workers was led by the Canadian Journalism Forum on Violence and Trauma, partnership with Carleton University, 
a professor at Carleton named Matthew Pearson working with Dave Seglins, who I know, a veteran CBC broadcaster. And uh, this was like a pretty major piece of research. They looked into survey responses from over 1,200 media workers in Canada. And turns out we're all doing great. Everybody's fine. <laughs> what a relief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess this was didn't have legs for a full segment. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> no, that's not what they found. No, no, we're not okay. The mental health symptoms of Canadian media workers are far above Canadian averages. 69% of us report anxiety, 46% of us depression, 15% PTSD, exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic, repeatedly covering stories related to trauma, not having the appropriate supports, not having supportive colleagues and supervisors who care about journalists, media workers' well-being or the expertise to help them emotionally. Also, of course, facing online harassment, other things. And of course, these symptoms are felt most acutely by women and BIPOC journalists and media workers. Not shocking stuff, but quantified, right? Proven demonstrably. What do you think? Yeah, it's challenging when these stories come out because of course then media is forced with like reporting on itself and and that's a little bit of navel gazing. We are probably the people who are most likely to care the most about these stories. If you know reporters, we have a tendency to only hang out with other journalists. Journalists hang out with journalists. No one else likes us. <laughs> these things weren't really <laughs> shocking. <laughs> well, right? Like, it, it, that's just what happens over the years is, like, the people that understand you the most are the people who do the job. And if you have, like, a spouse or friends who aren't involved in journalism, you try and tell them one of your boring journalist stories and they're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, you don't have to explain this to me. I, I, uh, I'm familiar with the terrain. But it's not just us, Jesse. I'm explaining to the listener. It's true. They're here, too. Yeah, let's make it like we're not people you want to have over. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you like like really boring FOI stories or graphic details of crime and like really off-color humor. And just such a, a painful level of self-regard and self-importance and just like, like, oh, my source is texting. Ah, oh, this is more important than what's happening here. And let me just go on and on with feverish, like, you know, obsession about my work. And I don't care about yours. Like, we're the worst. We're the worst. <laughs> so one of the things that really stuck with me was that 85% of journalists and media workers have never received training on mental health and trauma. That's, that's a pretty big deal. Um, you also have 46% report higher risks of drinking and 26% are heavy drinkers. I mean, I was like, oh, only 26%? There's not, it's not like a very health conscious <laughs> industry, right? At the same time, there was a really interesting article by Nadine Youssef uh, from the Toronto Star again. She's the mental health reporter talking about CBC's Colin Butler being diagnosed with PTSD and having to fight to have his work-related PTSD recognized. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that really does highlight the problem. And, and as like a media boss yourself, I think it's good to be aware of these things and good to think about the impact of stories on the people that work for you, even if they don't think of it themselves. And maybe now when I teach journalism students, I do talk to them about trauma, but certainly no one's ever talk to me about trauma. You know, you went in mm -hmm. and it was a part of the job. And that wasn't 
like 15 years ago or anything. <laughs> I'm only 34. So this is an abrupt change, I think, to start talking about this. Yes. And actually, we're both in leadership positions, you to educate people about this and me to, you know, a lot of this is about not having the adequate supports and not having, you know, managers who have the expertise and, and I don't. So, you know, somebody here should or, you know, somebody who helps us should. I take two views of this. Personally speaking, I have been aware of this issue of, you know, PTSD amongst journalists and mental health amongst journalists as a topic. You know, you would hear like people who report from conflict zones with PTSD and I, you know, try to listen and cover those types of accounts and hearing about the type of stresses that women and BIPOC journalists face, try to be open and listen. But it was never something that I really related to personally, you know, anxiety, stress, mental health of journalists until the pandemic. And then, yeah, something in the kind of like firewall between that which I cover and the, and the conflicts that I'm involved in. And the stresses of the job, like the wall became permeable and, you know, developed anxiety stuff. It's real. Like you can only kind of sequester that stuff or keep it in some silo from the rest of your psyche for so long and coming to a greater understanding of like, this is real. And so, you know, I'm kind of open to this kind of research and, and then the, you know, news stories covering it. And then as you say, Danny, on the other hand, I'm like, ah. Are we really going to write stories about how anxious we are and depressed we are to an audience that kind of hates us a lot of the time and like to an audience who we like we do damage to some like it is it is damaging to people's mental well-being to be misrepresented by the media and you know a lot of people feel that way and they are not really there for stories about how tough our jobs are it's not that this has to be on the front page of the newspaper every day but maybe it's something that like we shouldn't feel embarrassed to talk about or deal with or to joke about. Like, I guess the, the common thing is where we started, you and I, on this. It's like we joke about like, ah, you know, journalists can only marry other journalists and I'm on my third marriage and we're all hard drinking. And like, it's something that we regarded through humor and jokes for, I think, decades and decades. Yes, like it, it's certainly known. Um, I don't think that people view the journalist lifestyle as like overly healthy. I think there was another report, something along the lines of like we were all dehydrated and didn't drink enough water. And um, so it's good to see health. I think you can still integrate health into a workplace, even if it's journalism. You know, camaraderie is important, making sure that the team is working in unity, that they're respectful of one another and notice the impacts of deadlines on each other. Like, And maybe this will help solve that, is that a lot of people who are in journalism have only ever been in journalism. And so they don't know mm -hmm. what other offices or other places do to help deal with similar problems. Not, not necessarily the same, um, but like, let's say the, the medical field is obviously highly stressful. You know, dentists have a very high suicide rate. There's certainly other people that have stress and trauma in their jobs, and we can learn from what other places are doing. And I think that that's important. I suppose in some ways, reporting on it is a bit of accountability. You know, if, if you report on it, then that makes your organization culpable if there's something going on at your newsroom and nobody's helping you with it. So that is a good thing for Canada land. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, you know, constantly involved in the practice of painting a bullseye on myself. And, you know, Bell did this with Let's Talk Mental Health. It's like, OK, Bell, let's talk mental health. And we've published a number of stories about what's going on at Bell. Look, it's not self-important to regard that you're having trouble. You know, it's not any kind of indulgence to recognize that the tough stuff that we deal with gets in there and can harm us. 
yes to? <laughs> this is dumb. Of course, yes. Yes, yes. Like, th this should be discussed and regarded and dealt with, so. All right. That's shortcuts for this week. Danny, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything people send. Danny Parody, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Danny Parody if you have to. This episode's produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by so-called syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Mm -hmm.